And today we're going to be looking at Galatians chapter 3, verses 26 through 29. So I invite you to read along with me if you would. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free man, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus, and if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to the promise. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, again, we thank you for the amazing privilege that it is for us to study your word. Uh, Father, we appreciate the truth that you have given to us, especially in a culture of confusion. And we pray today, God, that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you will illuminate the scriptures to our hearts and minds, and that we will grasp the, uh, the beauty of them, and that it will have a powerful and eternal impact in our lives, even a sanctifying effect as you are molding us into the image of Christ. And we ask it in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. God bless you. You may be seated. Throughout the epistle of Galatians to this point, we have seen Paul making a strong and powerful argument for justification by faith. He is teaching us that we are not saved by good deeds, we're not saved by our actions, we're not saved by religious ceremony, we are saved by faith and that in Christ Jesus. Saved by faith and the faith itself is a gift from God. And he's given this defense of justification by faith in a number of ways throughout these opening three chapters. First of all, by the Galatians' experience. Back in Galatians 3 and 5, he said, So then does he who provides you with the Spirit and works miracles among you do it by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Obviously, he's drawing on their own experience even and saying, Look, you didn't receive the Spirit by works of the law. You receive the Spirit by faith. And then, of course, he gives the example of Abraham and his faith. Even so, Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness, he tells us in verse 6 of chapter 3. And so we see and how we've noted in weeks past that salvation has always been by faith. In fact, Abraham was saved by faith and even the examples given from Hebrews chapter 11, it tells us that these great people of faith were in fact saved by faith rather than by works. He also gives an example using the effect of the law. In verse 10, he says, For as many as are of the works of the law are under a curse. So we cannot be saved by the law because in fact it is by the law we find that we are under a curse. We are made guilty before God and the whole world is shut up in that guilt and condemnation. But the good news is found in verse 13 that we're saved by faith. Having been under the curse of the law, now we are redeemed from the curse of the law. Verse 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For in God's time, Christ was born of a woman, born under law to redeem those that are under law. And then he shows us another example, that is the permanence of faith. Verse 17, the law which came 430 years later does not invalidate a covenant previously ratified by God so as to nullify the promise. And so again, Paul goes to great lengths to show that God has established the eternal covenant of grace, that it is inalterable, it cannot be abolished, cannot be set aside, that in fact the law was given to serve the covenant. And then he shows us in the uh, sixth way, the, by the purpose of the law, again, we see our guiltiness. We find our need of a Savior that the law was given that transgressions may be multiplied. In other words, that we might come to a place of realizing, hey, our greatest need is not money in the bank. Our greatest need is not even physical healing. Our greatest need is salvation. We are lost. Apart from God, we have no hope. And we are alienated from Him. 
And so in verse 24, he tells us, Therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be what? Justified by faith. Justified by faith. And then this morning we see that he continues the argument by the believer's present position. Believer's present position. And so here we find Paul contrasting the position of the justified sinner, right? And you have put their trust in Christ. We are justified sinners, praise God. And he contrasts that position of the justified sinner with those who remain under the law. Those who are not justified. Those who have not come to Christ. And so we see that he gives a, a powerful demonstration of the justification of faith by contrasting these two positions that are in opposition to each other. Those who are sinners who have been justified by faith and those who remain under law, namely the human race. Those who have not been justified for they have not come to faith in Christ. And so we're going to consider this argument that Paul makes as we uh, investigate three positional transformations. Three positional transformations. In other words, there are three major transformations that take place in a person's life when he or she puts their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. The first positional transformation is adoption. That now we are sons of God. Can you say amen? Again, verses 26 and 27. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. Wow, sorry about that font. You can't hardly read it, can you? Uh, you'll just have to write down the references. <laughs> read them later. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. And so someone might say, well, that's great. But why is that news? I mean, there are people who would say, are not we all sons of God? Well, no. Not really. Not in a biblical sense. The Bible does not teach the universal fatherhood of God. It does show us in a metaphorical sense that God is the father of creation in that he is the author of life. He is the uncaused cause. He is the eternal one who predates creation itself. So in a metaphorical sense, God is the father of creation. But when the Bible refers to believers as being sons of God, listen, it is not referring in a metaphorical sense. We are sons of God not metaphorically. We are sons of God literally. Literally the sons of God. Through Christ, believers have literally become sons of God. Why? Because we have been adopted. Now we are adopted. And to appreciate this great truth, we've got to go back to the time of man's fall. And so we go back to Genesis chapter 1. We see there that God has created the heavens and the earth. And that God has filled the heavens with galaxies, of planets, with stars. He's created the sun and the moon. He has established our solar system. God has created the earth and He's filled the earth with all manner of animal and vegetation life. He's created the seas and He's filled the seas with life. And on the sixth day, God created mankind, created male and female in His own image. We were talking in Sunday school this morning about the great danger we have in our culture that wants to constantly create God in our image. But God is not man. He became man. But God created us in His image and we cannot get those two reversed else we will end up with all kinds of doctrines that are not biblical. So God on the sixth day created man in His own image and placed man in the garden and gave man a purpose 
tend the garden and gave man a prohibition. Said you can eat from all the trees of this garden except for the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It wasn't an apple tree. It just offends me when I see these stupid cartoons of, you mean God cursed Adam because he ate an apple? No. It was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And he prohibited Adam and Eve from partaking of that tree. And of course, we know God said, in the day that you eat of that tree, you will what? Die. You'll die. So what we have in the Scripture is a snapshot. It's, uh, it's a, um, how would you call it? Uh, it's a, an abridged version of what happened. It's an abstract if you're reading a dissertation, right? Because certainly there was more to the conversations. I, I mean, obviously God made it very clear. The future of humanity was on the line. He was not going to be vague. He was crystal clear in His instruction to Adam and Eve. But He tells us the kernel of what His expectations were. Jew cannot partake of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For the day that you partake of it, you shall surely die. And then regrettably, the Bible tells us that at long last, man transgressed. And both Adam and Eve partook of the forbidden fruit and became guilty before God. They were ejected from the presence of God manifested in the garden and they entered into a life under the curse. A side note. If you have discovered that life is difficult, welcome to the human race. We live under a curse. You know, I hope that you find a career that you enjoy. I hope that you spend your work week doing something that gives you satisfaction and gives you fulfillment. But I've got a news brief. There are going to be days that you say, what was I thinking when I chose this path? That doesn't mean you got the wrong career. You know what it means? It means you're a son of Adam. <laughs> that you, by the, by the toil of your work, by the effort of your uh, you know, energies, by the sweat of your brow, that's how the earth will produce for you. There are thorns and there are thistles, even for those of us who are in ministry. Why? Because that's the state of being. We are living in a world that has been cursed. And while Jesus has delivered us from the curse of the law, we are still in the world. And though we are not to be of the world, and because of the fall, Scripture does not consider man in general to be the sons of God. Now we are born as sons of Adam. Now we are born as sons of rebellion. In fact, this was the thought that the psalmist had in mind when he wrote, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Well, that doesn't mean that sexual relations between a husband and a wife are sinful. It's not the point. The point that he's making is that we are sinners by our very nature. That literally at the moment of conception, that sin character is passed on. And we are conceived in sin and brought forth in iniquity. That by our very nature, we have a bend toward rebellion. We're selfish. What's the first word we all learn? Mine! <laughs> right? Go work the nursery sometime. You'll hear exactly what I'm saying. Mine! It's mine. Mine, 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 mine. You know? And then we live the rest of our lives trying to get it out of our vocabulary. Because we're selfish. If we were not selfish, Paul would have been wasting his breath when he said, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. And he was speaking to the church. But instead, 
Esteem others and regard their needs as even more important than your own. We need to hear it. Pastor Greg, why do you preach about sin so often? Because we need to hear about it. We need to be reminded of those things that we know to be true, especially in a society that does not believe this, but instead says our biggest need is for improved self-esteem. No, friends, it is not. Our biggest need is to get our self-esteem under control. That old sinful nature that wants to rise up against the authority of Jesus Christ. Rather than sons of God in our fallen state, Colossians tells us we are alienated from God. Hostile in our minds toward Him. And then Paul tells us in Ephesians 2 that we're without God and without hope in the world before trusting in Christ. Ephesians 2 and 3 says that before trusting in Christ, we lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as what? The rest. Even as the rest. Even as all of humanity lives according to that self-centered and selfish desire. So rather than sons of God, by His nature, men are children of wrath. Men are conceived in iniquity. Men are infected, if you will, with sinful and corrupt tendencies. This is the bleak state of humanity. This is the dismal and doomed condition of humanity according to the, will of God, or according to the Word of God. Scripture declares this certainty Experience demonstrates its accuracy and death confirms its inescapable reality. For the wages of sin is death. And all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And in Adam all die. Men are not sons of God, but children of wrath. Men are awaiting the final judgment and storing up wrath for the day of reckoning. This is the hopeless, helpless, biblical description of fallen mankind. But the good news is we serve a God who calls light out of darkness. Can you say amen? He has shown in our hearts the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. And into this ruined and sin-benighted world, that great light of Christ has dawned. A light shining in the darkness, but the darkness did not comprehend it. He came to His own, but His own did not receive Him. But as many as received Him, to them He gave the right to become the children of God, even to those who believe in His name. What a privilege. John talks about it in his first epistle. See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we would be called children of God. And such we are. And then going back to Galatians 3 and 26. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. Wow. It's a glorious shift. Luther called the happy exchange involving a supernatural conversion resulting in a positional transformation. Now, rather than being alienated from God, we are adopted by God. Now, rather than being the enemies of God, we are the children of God. And the Bible tells us that as children of God, we are led by the Spirit of God, Romans 8.14. That as children of God, we overcome the world. Revelation 21 and 7. That as children of God, we practice righteousness. 1 John 2 and 29. That as children of God, we have not received a spirit of fear, but a spirit of adoption whereby we cry out, Abba, Father, Daddy. That intimacy of relationship with the Creator of the universe. Romans 8.15. That as children of God, we appear as lights in the world. Philippians 2.15 
That as children of God, we will be like Jesus. For we shall see Him as He is. Praise His name. The old hymn writer said, A tent or a cottage, why should I care? They're building a palace for me over there. Though exiled from home, yet still may I sing, All glory to God, I'm a child of the King. Amen. If you are a Christian, you're a child of the King. If you're a Christian, you've been adopted into the forever family of God. If you're a Christian, you're not an enemy of God, you're a friend of God. We need to grasp this, friends. That when Jesus Christ shed His blood upon the cross, and we were moved by faith from the power of the Holy Spirit as the Word of God was quickened to us, and we put our trust in Him, He made us to be at peace with God. To be at peace with Him. He broke down that barrier wall that divided the holy presence of God and the holy of holies from mankind. Ripping it asunder from top to bottom. And now the way was made that we could come into the presence of God the Father. To enter boldly before the throne of grace. Why? Because of the precious atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ. He was judged on our behalf. He is the Prince of Peace. And that peace goes far beyond our emotional well-being. It goes far beyond some state of mind. It is first of all a legal peace that we have been declared justified before God. And now we're no longer His enemies. No longer alienated from Him. But we are at peace with God. And now we stand in grace. Hallelujah. We stand in grace. We stand in grace. Stand firm then in the grace that you have through Christ Jesus. Having come to Christ, you have clothed yourself with Christ. This text tells us. It literally means to be immersed in Him. To be immersed in the Lord Jesus Christ. So that when God looks at you, He sees His Son. You are, your life is hidden with Christ in God. Swallowed up with Him. Immersed in Him. A powerful transformation. This thing we call adoption. But there is a second one. And that is union. To be one in Christ. Again, Galatians 3.27 and 8. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. All one in Christ Jesus. All in Christ are spiritually united. You see, according to the Bible, there's only one body of Christ. According to the Bible, there's only one fellowship of believers. According to the Bible, there's only one church. The church universal. Comprised of all who have been baptized by the Spirit into the body of Christ. And I declare that this morning and we say, well, yeah, we know that. And it doesn't seem all that profound. But this was one of the cardinal truths that caused John Huss to be burned at the stake. Even as that righteous man studied the Scriptures and declared that there is one church universal comprised of all who have been purchased with the precious blood of Jesus. The elect of God. Someone might look at that and say, well, how can you say there's only one church? I mean, there are hundreds of denominations. There are dozens of churches in our own city. Well, that's because attending worship doesn't make you a Christian. I love how Keith Green used to say, going to church doesn't make you a Christian any more than going to McDonald's makes you a hamburger. <laughs> Believe me, I would be a quarter pounder with cheese by now. <laughs> It's all right, confession's good for the soul. 
Joining a local church doesn't make you a member of the body of Christ. Engaging in Christian charity doesn't make you a genuine believer in Jesus. Only those whom have been baptized by the Holy Spirit into the body of Christ belong to Christ. Only those who are born again, only those are citizens of the kingdom. Only those who have put their faith in Jesus Christ are the sons of God. Pastor Greg, are you saying that you have to speak in tongues to be a Christian? Absolutely not. Oh, I could go there this morning, but I won't. It's a whole other series of sermons. <laughs> Listen, if you're a Christian, you've received the Spirit. There's no such thing as a Christian who doesn't have the Holy Spirit. Lots of churchgoers who have not the Holy Spirit, but they're not Christians. The fundamental difference between those with Christ and those without Christ are those with Christ have received the Spirit of Christ. It's very clear in the Bible. Paul talks about it in Romans. That if you have not the Spirit of Christ, you are none of His. So when you are saved, the Holy Spirit baptizes you into the body of Christ and comes to dwell in you. And it doesn't matter if you're Lutheran, and it doesn't matter if you're Presbyterian, and it doesn't matter if you're Baptist, it doesn't matter if you're Church of God, it doesn't matter if you're Nazarene, it doesn't matter if you're Methodist, it doesn't matter if you're Catholic. If you put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and have been baptized into His body by the Holy Spirit, you are saved. A member of the church universal. Can you say amen? A little bit wound up this morning. What happens when you have me pre uh, teach Sunday school before I preach? We'll know what goes on. But Jesus gives us some riveting and sobering words in Matthew chapter 7. He says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. That doesn't mean we're saved by our good works. But let me quickly remind us that it is only those who have put their faith in Jesus Christ and have been born again that have been set free to live free. They've been set free to obey the Lord. We're the only ones that are capable of living a life that would please God and even we are not perfect, but we strive and we lean toward the goal of becoming more like Jesus. That's why Paul talked about casting off everything that entangles us in the sin that trips us up and running with perseverance the race that is set before us. But that John encourages us that as we have come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, that when we sin, his righteousness covers us. The blood of Jesus washes and cleanses us from all unrighteousness. So in John 17 and 3, Jesus said, This is eternal life, that they may know you, speaking of the Father, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. That's, that's eternal life. Knowing God through faith in Jesus. So when do you receive eternal life? When you're saved. Guess what? If you could lose that, that's not eternal. That's transitory. That's temporal. But if you have received eternal life, which has just been defined as knowing God through faith in Christ Jesus, guess what? You will persevere. And sometimes it won't look like it. And sometimes even Christians can get tripped up with besetting sin and may even fall into seasons of disobedience and transgression. Does that mean that they're not saved? Well, that's between them and God. I can't judge what's in a man's heart. Only God can. But here's what I will tell you. I guarantee you that there are some that look every bit as saved as everybody else, but they are not. How do you know? 
Because Jesus just told us in Matthew 7, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Jesus went on to teach that in the body of Christ grow together we and tares. But the day will come when they will be sorted out. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father. I also know that there are times when Christians may fall into a pattern of repeated sin. They still love the Lord, but there is a war raging within them. And at least temporarily, they have allowed the enemy to get the upper hand. To those, I would give the strongest word of warning. Either you are not saved and you need to get saved. Or you are saved and let me warn you. God has told us in very clear terms that those He loves, He chastens. And there will be consequences to open and willful transgression. Mark my words. For whatever a man sows, that shall he also reap. The Bible is crystal clear. God loves us enough to take us to the woodshed. I've been there a time or two. I don't want to go back. (laughs) I want to go back. Not trusting in myself or in my own efforts. I am trusting in the power of Jesus Christ, the righteous, who has imparted his righteous unto me to get me to the other side. For the God who saves us is the God who keeps us. Can you say amen? Those who are in Christ Jesus are those regenerated by the Holy Spirit. As Paul says, they have been baptized into Christ Having clothed themselves now with Christ, they are immersed in Him. So let's take a moment and talk about this concept of being baptized into Christ. That is is not water baptism. There's no water at all in that verse. Else Paul himself would be teaching the false doctrine of baptismal regeneration. Now listen. Listen. Do you think Paul is going to spend the first three chapters of Galatians to teach that we're not saved by good works? To completely undo it now by saving, by saying, oh, accept baptism? Of course not. In fact, if he were to teach that at this point, it would completely turn on his head his entire teaching about being saved by faith alone. It would actually give material to the Judaizers. It would add and completely destroy uh, the argument that he's been making, supporting the heresy of salvation by human achievement. For you see, in in very clear language, the Bible makes makes it so obvious to us that salvation is only by faith. That the two options that we are given is salvation by human achievement, which is not salvation at all, or salvation by divine accomplishment. It is what God has done through His Son. So baptism of the Spirit is what he's talking about here. And what I will say on the subject without getting into a full-blown diatribe, (laughs) and keep giving me that look if you need to, (laughs) is that Salvation of the Spirit can be referred to as baptism of the Spirit, if you will. It is synonymous with salvation. It is not an event subsequent to salvation, but a description of salvation itself. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13. For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one Spirit. You see, my brothers and sisters in the Pentecostal and charismatic world have not been given something that I have not been given as a Christian. They have not. 
I ought to know I was brought up in the Pentecostal tradition. And it was as a minister ordained in the Pentecostal tradition that searching the Scriptures for myself, I said, I cannot believe this doctrine any longer. It is not rightly dividing the Word of Truth. And the problem that I have with that entire approach to Christianity goes well beyond the matter of the misinterpretation of the Holy Spirit's person and work. It cuts to the characteristic of salvation itself. For I was taught that I was saved by faith alone in Christ alone. But I kept my salvation through works. That's what I was taught. And that is a teaching that the philosophers and theologians at Pentecostal seminaries would deny. And yet in practice, that's exactly what it is. Which is why people rush to the altar every week to give their lives to Christ even though they've been serving Him for 20, 30, 40 years. There's no, no assurance of their salvation. Why? Because they think the responsibility to keep themselves holy is their responsibility. Friends, our portion of the equation is to yield to the Spirit of God. And yes, we are called to yield to Him, to submit to Him. But it is His power working through His Word and Spirit that sanctifies us. Not self-will or self-determination or I'm just going to try harder this time. It's the power of His Spirit. And when we handle those texts, especially those dealing with the Holy Spirit's person and ministry, in such a way that is to mishandle them, we make a mess, not only of the gifts of the Spirit, but of salvation itself. And the burden that we put upon our people is similar to the burden that the Judaizers wanted to put on the early church. And so Paul says, look, you didn't receive the Spirit by good works. You can't keep the Spirit by good works. You were saved by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So every true Christian has received the Spirit of God. The Bible is very clear. The believer's body is now the temple of the Holy Spirit. Man, that ought to make you uncomfortable at times. <laughs> I know it does me. It should. It should. The identifying mark of the believer is the possession of the Spirit of God. That anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him, Paul said in Romans 8 and 9. So the implications are that we are in the kingdom of God. And now, because Paul says there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free man, there is neither male nor female, we know that we are all one in Christ Jesus. I don't know if you've been keeping up to date with what's going on in the news in Charlottesville, Virginia. As white supremacists have been marching in the streets and putting on full display the absolute lunacy of their worldview. I'll go beyond that and say the absolute satanic nature of their worldview. It is evil on full display. And it has no place in the body of Christ or in the kingdom of God. Because listen, in the church universal, in the church capital C, in the church, the body of Christ, the church of the firstborn, those who are comprised of believers in Christ, who have been bought by His blood and baptized by His Spirit, there is no place for racism. Period. End of discussion. And if my words aren't good enough to make the argument, which they're not, let me quote from the Scripture. 
1 John chapter 4, verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. Verse 20. If someone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he is a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. So what I'll say is this. I don't care if it's the Black Lives Matters movement. I don't care if it's the Nazi Party of America. I don't care if it's the white supremacists that are walking in the streets today in Charlottesville, Virginia. Makes absolutely no difference. Anyone that would espouse a doctrine of racism is not saved. They're not Christians. And I don't care if they have all the trappings and vestments of the largest church on the planet. They're not saved. What are they? They're liars. That's what the Apostle John just told us. They're liars. In fact, he, he went even further and said, they don't even know God. Because if they don't love their brother whom they see, it will be impossible for them to love God whom they cannot see. And friends, when we get to heaven... One of the most glorious states of being will be that there are the redeemed from every tribe, nation, and tongue. That we will be worshiping with blacks. We'll be worshiping with Asians. We'll be worshiping with whites. We'll be worshiping with East Indians. We'll be worshiping with Eskimos. We'll be worshiping with people from the four corners of the planet. Because He has chosen for Himself redeemed from every nation, tribe, and tongue. Can you say amen? So let the church of Jesus Christ demonstrate love to this world by saying, God is no respecter of persons. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither free man nor slave man. There is neither male nor female. But all are one in Him. He's no respecter of persons. And we love Everyone. Amen. So where it, give God a hand clap offering of praise. That's His truth. So what do we do as a church? As a church, we stand against it. And we are loving and we're sensible and we're sensitive, but we're firm. And we tell people, that nonsense is of the devil. That nonsense is satanic. I mean, the Judaizers were trying to divide the church. Nothing has changed, has it? Century after century after century. Our old, depraved nature. But that stems in large part from a misunderstanding of salvation itself. Because, you know, once we become Christians and God has given us a new nature, we still have the old nature that we struggle with. And there are times when we've been saved for 10, 20, 30, 40 years. And it's so easy for us to forget the muck and the mire and the sin that God delivered us from. And then we begin to think maybe we had a little something to do with it. <laughs> you know? And we don't maybe consciously say that to ourselves. But our actions betray us through an attitude of self-righteousness. Where we run into trouble is when we allow our differences to divide us instead of allowing our differences to be celebrated. What do you mean? I love going on cruise ships. And one of the reasons I love to go on cruise ships is because I love to eat. Which is why I go to the gym, incidentally. I don't go to the gym because I have this innate need to go to the gym. I go to the gym because I like to eat. <laughs> But one of the things about cruise ships which is so delightful is that they've got these smorgasbords. And you will have at times food from every corner of the planet. And so I can sample Asian food. And I can sample Mexican food. And I can sample, uh, well, I was going to say British food, but it's not that good. <laughs> and as a prat, I can say that. 
Italian food, probably going to be my biggest weakness, right? Just an example of how the beauty of diversity has, you know, as people from the different places on earth have, have applied their gifts to the culinary arts. Wow, you know. Where we get into trouble is when we think that the gospel of Jesus Christ is somehow a Western concept. The gospel of Jesus Christ is from the throne of God. It predates Western civilization because Jesus is the Lamb of God slain from the foundation of the world. It was God's plan to save for Himself out of all of humanity, the elect, by Christ Jesus. And so the gospel transcends ethnicities. It transcends nationalities. It transcends the color of our, of our skin. It transcends our education level. It transcends whether we have money or whether we don't have money. It transcends whether we're a slave or free. It transcends all of that. And it unites us in Christ. So union, this powerful uh, doctrine, is something that not only has had a profound impact on us, but through us needs to impact our world. Amen? The third transformational position is the one of possession. Possession. And again in verse 29 we're told, And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to promise. And we could do a whole message on that one verse. Now, don't get worried. I see the expression on your face. <laughs> I know you've got roast in the oven at home. We won't do a whole message on it today. But there's so much packed into this verse. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants. Heirs, according to promise. Reminds me of a beautiful story. Years ago, a wealthy man who was a widower. He was an art collector. And together, he and his son has, had amassed a tremendous art collection. They took a, a number of years to just travel throughout the world and to purchase pieces you know, that they had researched and chosen and, and then put into their own collection. And they had a great time doing it. But World War II broke out. And when it did, the son was called to go and to serve his country and left the, the widower father at home alone. And as the battle raged, about a month into his service, the young man was killed. And so there came a knock at the door of the estate. The old man went and he answered the door. And there was standing a soldier who had in his hand a package. It was Christmas Day. And he identified himself as a soldier whom his son had died trying to save. He said, your son was carrying me to the medic when he was shot. But I brought something for you I'd like to give to you. And so the man invited him in, opened up the package, and there was a beautiful painting. And it was a portrait of his son. A portrait of his son that just seemed to capture the son's personality. And what made it even more special was that it was this soldier who was the artist and had painted this for the man. Well, after he left, the father looked for a prominent place to hang that portrait of his son so that he could see his son every day. And winter turned into spring, and spring turned into summer, and the old man died. And that summer, when they held the auction, art collectors from all over the world assembled because the buzz was great. This is going to be quite an auction. And as they came together for the auction that day, the auctioneer began the auction by presenting for them the portrait of the son. And they were kind of baffled because they're like, well, this isn't even a piece that the museums want. And someone even, you know, said words to that effect. Let's get on to the real stuff that we got here for. Put that portrait away. Nobody wants that portrait. But the auctioneer was insistent. And he made it very clear. He said, we have to sell this one first. So who will take the son? Can I get $100? 
And finally, after a, a few moments, awkward silence, an old man raised his hand and he said, well, you know, I, I knew the son. I'll give the $100. It would be nice for me to have that. I, I, I was one of his friends. So the auctioneer called out, can I get more than 100 And after a few more moments of silence, the gavel came down, sold for $100. And then the auctioneer said, that concludes the auction for today. And that sent the room into a tizzy. I mean, people had come from all over the world. What do you mean? We didn't come here for that portrait. We came here for these pieces, these collector's pieces that our museums are looking for. What do you mean the auction's over? And the auctioneer said, according to the will of the Father, whoever takes the Son gets it all. The same is true of us. Whoever takes the Son gets it all. For all of the promises of God in Christ are yea and amen. Yes and amen. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God and if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. Listen to this. If indeed we suffer with Him, that we may also be glorified together. If we suffer with Him, we'll be glorified with Him. All of God's promises are in Christ. Are you in Christ? Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you today for the great and precious promises that you have given us in Christ. And we thank you, Father, for the faith that you have given that we might believe in Jesus, your Son. And that believing in Him, we might have life in His name. I pray, Father, today for those that don't know You, who have not put their trust in You. I ask that You would minister to them by the power of Your Holy Spirit the faith that they need to believe. That in believing, they too will receive life. And then, Father, I remember the activities of our world and the brokenness of our world, the darkness of our culture and how you have called us and placed us in this world as light for the world. I pray that you will help us to boldly proclaim unity in Christ and that we will call people to believe in him and that in coming to him, they will see that there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, but all are one in Jesus. Use us for your glory, Lord, to declare your gospel in word and in deed. And now, Father, as we give back to you a portion of that which you've given to us in the form of these offerings, we pray that you would take and bless them and give us wisdom for their use. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you as you give to the work of the Lord.